Well, let's uh, turn in our Bible uh, this evening to the Song of Solomon, please. Song of Solomon, chapter 1. Now you say, what in the world does the Song of Solomon have to do with the Reformation? Song of Solomon, chapter 1. Well, we are going to look at the second, probably most influential reformer uh, from Scotland, and that would be the Reverend Dr. Samuel Rutherford tonight. And we're going to talk a little bit about his biography, and then we also are going to talk about his writing, his letters, his ministry, uh, through those letters to the church at Anwath, where he uh, ministered but was removed from by way of the government uh, when they put him in exile in the coastal town of Aberdeen on the other side of the country. So we're going to look at Song of Solomon. Now, the reason we're looking at the Song of Solomon is because there are probably as many references in Rutherford's letters and allusions to the Song of Solomon as about any book in the Bible. And I don't know if anybody has ever done a PhD study on why that is, uh, but uh, it is true as you read through his letters. Um, he saw our relationship uh, really as a marriage, um, that our relationship as a church to Jesus Christ um, was very much on his mind and was often the means of consolation uh, that he offered to the people that he wrote to with various uh, problems. So let's pray together, and then I want to read uh, from the first few lines of the Song of Solomon. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for tonight's lesson and pray that the Spirit would help me to bring this word and to teach it, Lord, in a way that would profit your church and would help us all to see your loveliness and the loveliness of your Son, Jesus Christ, as we are your bride. And so, Lord, we pray, come, let us run together. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. The Song of Solomon, chapter 1, starting at verse 1 through verse 4. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's, may he... Kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Your oils have a pleasing fragrance. Your name is like purified oil. Therefore, the maidens love you. Draw me after you and let us run together. The king has brought me into his chambers. We will rejoice in you and be glad. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. Now these opening words here are spoken by the bride in Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon here. And these opening words are the song of the bride to the bridegroom. Now in one sense, this uh, song is about an earthly marriage. But remember John 5, Jesus says that everything in the Old Testament speaks of Christ including in uh, this book. And so even as we learn from this poem and this song about earthly love, we know from this and Ephesians 5 and other places how marriage is a picture of Jesus Christ's love for us. And so we see here this call of the bride that the groom would kiss us, uh, that he would love us and that he would pour out his affection uh, upon the church. 
And this is something that was much on the mind of Rutherford. When Rutherford was seeking to advance the Reformation, now, of course, the first and most influential reformer you know is John Knox. John Knox, who lived in the 16th century, but uh, on no less authority than Dr. Sinclair Ferguson, who himself is Scottish, has said that the second most influential reformer in the Scottish church would be Samuel Rutherford. So if you're looking for a good name uh, and you, 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 don't, you want to move beyond the magisterial reformers of Calvin and Knox, maybe Rutherford might be one out there for you. A great hero of the faith. Uh, my, my dad's mom's family has a Rutherford in it, a Samuel Rutherford uh, in, in the list of names. So it's encouraging to see that. Um, let me first tell you a little bit about Rutherford. If you don't know much about him, I'm drawing this material uh, from Joel Beakey and Randall Pedersen's book called Meet the Puritans, which is a great book. If you want a book that just has a, um, little biographies on all the Puritans, Meet the Puritans is a great book. They have a, just a couple pages on each person that they focus on. And so they have a section on Samuel Rutherford. Rutherford was born in uh, 1600, um, and he was born in a town called uh, Nisbet, N-I-S-B-E-T, um, and he was the eldest son of a well-to-do farmer. Uh, he attended the University of Edinburgh. He excelled at an early age at Latin and Greek, and eventually, at an early age, became actually a professor of humanity in Edinburgh. However, in 1625, he had to resign, and there was a bit of a cloud over this resignation that supposedly it was for uh, inappropriate, inappropriate behavior with a young woman named uh, Euphame, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, Hamilton, who became his wife. Uh, but the Lord used this incident, however, to bring him to a conviction of his sin and bring him to faith in Jesus Christ. So we can see sometimes that even when people get in trouble, Sometimes that is actually a blessing to them because they are uh, undone of their own righteousness, especially if it has any conversation about it in, in the community. And so this was something that God used to convict Rutherford of his unrighteousness and of his sin and to bring him to a saving uh, trust in Jesus Christ. Now, after Rutherford was converted to Christ, <clears throat> he began to study theology, and he was asked if he would pastor this church, a little church in Anwath, Scotland, A-N-W-O-T-H, A-N-W-O-T-H, Anwath, Scotland. It is in a rural area, and the members of this church were scattered on farms in a very hilly district of Scotland. Uh, probably prior to Rutherford's ministry there, the most famous minister that they had had was the grandson of John Knox. He had pastored there for uh, about five years prior to Rutherford coming. So uh, they had some legacy of uh, famous ministers, the grandson of John Knox. Uh, but Rutherford would be one who uh, would eclipse uh, even the former ministers there. He was an early riser by habit, uh, getting up in the very early hours of the day for prayer and for meditation. 
Uh, Rutherford was known for being an effective and tireless pastor uh, of this church for about 10 years. During that time, Samuel Rutherford became a strong opponent of episcopacy. Now, episcopacy for the children here is another form of church government. You uh, go to a church that holds to what is known as Presbyterian government. That is, it is a government of elders. It's a combination of uh, teaching elders or ordained ministers plus elders that are elected from the congregation, from the laity. So the the, uh, Presbyterian system of government is a combination of lay elders, lay governors, and ministers combined, working together. Now, in episcopacy, it doesn't work that way. You don't have this uh, elected representation of the congregation. What you have is a hierarchical government where you have a single individual uh, ruling and often usually by appointment, by a higher uh, bishop. And, and that was seeking to be, that system of government was trying to be imposed upon the people of Scotland, particularly from the people in uh, the monarchy in England. Rutherford was an opponent of this. He believed that the Bible did specify the type of government that the church should have, that it's not just okay to, well, if you want to be independent, you can be independent, or if you want to be Presbyterian, you can be Presbyterian. If you want to be Episcopal, you can be Episcopal. Um, that it, as though church government was irrelevant. Rutherford believed that a church government was indeed taught in the Scriptures and that the church had a duty to do the government of the church the way the Bible says that we should do it. And that, uh, so he was a committed Presbyterian, and therefore he found himself in opposition to episcopacy. Now, that's not like opposing it today, okay? Just so you know here, um, you know, you, you, uh, you know, internet warriors out there, uh, you know, who want to debate theology, it's not the same today as it was back then. To oppose episcopacy many times meant you were opposing the civil government, uh, you, you were imposing the king's will for the church, and you were opposing the men that the king had appointed. So in many cases, uh, this came, this opposition to church government, this is not like today where this is a leisurely debate. Uh, this meant possible arrest and conviction and loss of ministry and having uh, some other bishop-appointed guy take your pulpit, and you lose, you know, um, your congregation, and you lose uh, even the ability to uh, legally speak to members of your church, and they could banish you. So there was, this was a serious business here, and you need to appreciate that even though the Reformation is, you know, a hundred years in, um, it, you know, if you look going back to the time of Luther, we're talking another, you know, 100 years since the time of, of Luther, but there's still a lot of work to be done, uh, a lot of reforming that still needed to be done in, in the details. And so it was not easy uh, for a lot of our heroes uh, in their ministry. So in 1630, Samuel Rutherford was called to appear before the Court of High Commission in Edinburgh. That is, he got in trouble, boys and girls. 
Now, this was a good kind of trouble. He wasn't doing anything bad. He was being faithful. It was the government that was being bad, okay? Just so you understand here. In addition to these controversies, he became involved in a controversy involving Arminianism. Uh, and here again, we, we get to debate the Arminian Calvinism issue leisurely. That, you, you know, it's not going to change your life if you stand up for Calvinism. But in Rutherford's day, um, the English episcopacy was dominated by Arminians. And so Rutherford increasingly was coming within the crosshairs of the English authorities. And, and not just the English bishops, but the king who appointed those bishops. Um, you know, the Stuart monarchy was known for saying, no bishop, no king. They saw it as a threat to their own monarchy to be opposing Episcopal government here in Rutherford's day. So in July of 1636, he was called to come before the high court. <clears throat> the commission deprived Rutherford of his ministerial office. After a three-day trial, Rutherford uh, was uh, forbidden to preach anywhere in Scotland, and he was confined to the town of Aberdeen. Now, today we think of Aberdeen as that nice university town, uh, and, uh, you know, that's where some of our heroes, William Still, was and had his great ministry and where he influenced, you know, um, Ligon Duncan and Doug Kelly and Sinclair Ferguson and all these other guys. We think, oh, Aberdeen, man, what a great place, you know, to, to get banished to. No, not in Rutherford's day, okay? In, in Rutherford's day in the 1630s, going to Aberdeen was like going to the edge of the earth. Okay, it, it was uh, being sent far away uh, from civilization. So he is um, sent to this place that, um, in fact, theologically, it was probably the most difficult place you could go. Uh, because if there was any stronghold for Arminianism and Episcopacy, it was in Aberdeen in that day. So he's separated from the congregation which he loves, which was a sore trial for him. But as God often does in our suffering, he brings out fruit from that suffering. Our suffering in Jesus Christ is never in vain. And so it was good for Rutherford and it was good ultimately for his church and for the church at large. Now, why do I say that? Well, one of the benefits of this period of separation, we get what today is the collection of all the letters, or a lot of the letters, that Rutherford wrote during that time to his congregation. Now, he was forbidden to be in their presence. He was forbidden to speak to them. But they didn't forbid him to write to them. So his people would write him letters and tell them about things that were bothering them or spiritual struggles that they were having or discouragements that they were going through. A lot of these people, they lost loved ones. They lost a husband. They lost a child at, at young, at, while the child was very young. They, they were going through terrible struggles. And these struggles would come to Rutherford, and Rutherford would write to them as a pastor and seek to bring the balm of Gilead to their sore, um, that he would seek to minister to them as best he could from a distance. So it was during this period uh, that this, these letters came about. Now, in 1638, 
1638. The struggles between England's king and the parliament between Presbyterianism and Episcopacy were escalating. And so it was about this time that the well-known National Covenant was signed in Scotland. Um, and we don't have too much time to go into it, but this was the first. Uh, later, another covenant would be signed, the Solemn League and Covenant later. But this was kind of the first time that the Scottish people were coming together and committing themselves and pledging themselves as a nation to Jesus Christ. And where laity and um, elders were coming together to commit their lives to this covenant and to sign this covenant. So Rutherford was able to leave Aberdeen. Uh, and he left, of course, he went back to Anwath. Um, he was appointed by the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church in Scotland, though, however, to become a professor of theology at St. Mary's College in St. Andrews. And so Rutherford had to leave uh, again. Uh, it was during this period in the 1630s that Rutherford's first wife died, and he was left without a wife, and he had one daughter named Agnes. Um, he would later in, this, in 1640 remarry a woman named Jean McMath, and together they had six children, but all of whom died before Rutherford died himself. And so you can see how, while greatly used of the Lord, um, he was a man of tremendous suffering. Uh, he lost all his kids, um, at least before he died. Again, this echoes, you know, if you know anything about the life, for example, of John Owen, you know that Owen had, I think it was ten children himself, um, I think all but one. Uh, were lost. So uh, this was a tremendous period of suffering. They did not have boys and girls of modern medicine uh, the way we do. And so a lot of things um, which doctors can heal you of or prevent you from getting in the first place, uh, they did not have. And, uh, and it was very difficult uh, for families. Um, so Rutherford knew a sorrow, a tremendous sorrow. Now, during this time, uh, just to shorten the history here, the Parliament, you know, uh, wins the war, the Civil War in England. So in 1643, the Parliament of England calls for the Westminster Assembly to begin. There were six Scottish commissioners to the Assembly. Rutherford is one of those six. Rutherford stays from 1643 to 1647. Jim Rensenhouse was telling me this morning that uh, he has a book that uh, says that they actually also called for two uh, Puritan ministers from New England to come to the Westminster Assembly. But I think, Jim, you said that neither one of them attended. I'm assuming one of them is John Cotton, but I don't... I, yes, John Cotton. Who's the other one? Do you remember? That's okay. We know, figure Cotton would be one of them. But uh, Rutherford was one of them. Now, the Scottish commissioners were in attendance. They participated in everything but voting. So they, they were there for the discussions. They were there for the debates. They helped with the writing. In fact, the, the, um, the shorter ca uh, catechism uh, was where Rutherford was particularly influential. So boys and girls, you, you can praise Rutherford or 
lament Rutherford, whichever. <laughs> when you're memorizing the Shorter Catechism, just remember that the hand of Rutherford uh, is behind that document there. Um, now, during this time, he wrote again, you know, still writing to the church in Anwath. Uh, and he writes the following thing. He says about this time period in his life and ministry and the writing of the catechism. He says, if ye fall away and forget the good doctrine and that catechism I taught you, the Lord judge between you and me. And so he gives that admonition to his congregation uh, that they should uh, learn and memorize the catechism which he wrote and that God was going to stand between them and judge between them uh, for how well they heeded uh, the teachings of it. And that's going to be true for you guys as well. Rutherford, when you read, and we are going to read some samples here from the letters in a moment, but um, Rutherford writes another book. And when you read that book and this one, you would almost think you're dealing with two entirely different people. Because here, this book is very warm, pastoral. It's, this is something that you would use in family worship. This is something that you might read as a couple, you know, just to read a paragraph at a time or a letter at a time, uh, just to warm your heart. You read Lex Rex, <laughs> and you're thinking, I need an attorney. <laughs> what in the world? Uh, is, is going on. Lex Rex. Now, what is Lex Rex? Lex Rex, his other book, uh, it, it means the law is king. Basically, Lex Rex argues for the limitation of the divine right of kings. You have to remember, we're still living in an age, it's, you know, it's only a few centuries ago. But only a few centuries ago, kings believed that they were God's commissioned servant and whatever they decided was the law. And that was a powerful argument throughout Europe. And Rutherford, at the threat of his own life, writes a book seeking to apply the teaching of the Bible to the civil magistrate, something that I think modern evangelicals would do well to learn, that yeah, the Bible speaks not just to your private life and not just to your church life, not just to your family life, but it has things to say to the public life as well. So Rutherford writes this book and he says, oh no, oh kings, you kings who think you're little gods, that you can do whatever you want and whatever you want is fine with God himself. Do you not realize there is a judge over you? There is a king over you and that you are subject to this king and you are not free to be a tyrant. You are at liberty to do the will of God, but the will of God is prescribed in the word and you may not go beyond the word. Um, and so it, it's a book that argued for the limitations on the divine right of kings, that the law was king, not king. Man was not king. Kings are subject to the law of God, to the commands of God. Now, not only did this book deal with the limitations of the king's authority, but it also said something to the citizenry. And that is that, that magistrates have a right to exact obedience from citizens. That citizens are not at complete license to do whatever they want, regardless of the king. 
but that as the king uh, under the Lord uh, gives us uh, laws that are not contrary to the laws of God and do not cause us to sin, we are to be faithful so that both the citizenry and the magistracy are to be under the authority of Christ. Christ is Lord of all. And that both have obligations to the Lord and mutually to one another. So, Lex Rex. Read it if you're, you think you're ready. But, you know, it, listen, I, try, I did read it. I can't say that I comprehended what I was reading on every page. My eyeball went on along every line. Let's put it that way. Uh, I don't know that I fully understood what I was reading, but um, there it is. Read it if, you, if you'd like. But I would recommend you start with the letters. <laughs> Rutherford returns to St. Andrews in 1647. Uh, St. Andrews, of course, the great university town. Of course, that was also where John Knox began the, his Reformation and where he uh, preached. So St. Andrews... Um, Rutherford goes to in 1647. He spends his last 14 years as the principal at St. Mary's and the rector of the university there. Um, now, again, just summing up here a little bit, coming to the end of his life, by the 1650s, the Church of Scotland is torn between two competing parties. One group are those who want to restore the Stuart monarchy. Namely, they want to restore Charles II. These people are called, anybody know? The Resolutioners. Okay, the Resolutioners. The Resolutioners want to restore Charles II to the throne. Cromwell has died. Cromwell's son proves that he's not really up to the task that his dad was. Um, and, and so there's a group who want to bring back the Stuart monarchy. You know the short story, the monarchy is restored in 1660. Charles II says, oh yeah, I'll subscribe to the Solemn League and Covenant. Oh yeah, I adhere to the Westminster Standards, blah, blah, blah. Blah, 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 blah. Fingers crossed, fingers crossed. You know, he just wanted the throne. He was not sincere, boys and girls, at all in his oath. So you can imagine what now awaits, especially when you kill your daddy, okay? They cut that daddy's head off, okay? So Charles II wants vengeance, all right? And he begins to exact it. And so persecution, uh, surprisingly, breaks out in the 1660s. I don't know what the resolutioners were thinking, obviously. I, I don't know. I don't know. But anyway, so persecution um, awaited Rutherford. So in 1661, Rutherford is charged with treason. Again, he's deprived of his church. He's deprived of his university chair. He's deprived of his stipend, and they order that the cop, all copies of Lex Rex are to be burned. He's placed under house arrest. In 1661, a summons comes to him with the charge of treason, and they demand his appearance before the council. But there's a problem, and that is Rutherford is already dying. And so the summons comes to his house, and Rutherford replies to the summons, quote, tell them, that is the council, tell the council, I have got a summons already before a superior judge and judicatory, and I behoove to answer my first summons, and ere your day arrive, 
I will be where few kings and great folks come. Wow. <laughs> Basically, he's saying, I'm going to heaven and you won't be there. Or very few of you will be. But here he also wrote to his fellow ministers during this time. He said, dear brethren, he says, do all for Jesus Christ. Pray for Christ. Preach for Christ. Beware of men pleasing. Unquote. Let me read you just a little. I, I have way too many samples here. We don't have time to read them all, but let's read just a few samples from his letters. On page 19, he wrote to a woman named Lady Kenmore, K-E-N-M-U-R-E, Lady Kenmore. Uh, he was seeking uh, to bring a comfort to this woman. And uh, at one point, he writes this, We are in great fears of a great and fearful trial to come upon the Kirk of God. By the way, boys and girls, Kirk, K-I-R-K, that means church, okay? That's just the Scottish word for church. So we, we are in great fears of a great and fearful trial to come upon the church of God. For these who would build their houses and nests upon the ashes and mourning or sorrowing of Jerusalem have drawn our king upon hard and dangerous conclusions against such as your termed Puritans. That is, they're telling these, the king to root the Puritans out. He says, for the rooting of them out, our pre prelates, prelates assure us that for such as will not conform, there is nothing but imprisonment and deprivation. So he's saying here, this is what's awaiting us. But listen to this, and here we get into the language of the Song of Solomon. He says, the spouse of Jesus, who's the spouse of Jesus, boys and girls? The church, yeah. The spouse of Jesus will ever be in the fire, but I trust in my God she shall not consume, because the goodwill of him who dwelleth in the bush. And he's saying here that even though the, the church has to go through fiery trials. Remember who's in the fire, that it is God. And he makes an allusion to Moses at the burning bush. It is God who is in the bush. And you could also, you know, even refer to, he doesn't, but you could refer to Daniel, you know, the fourth being in the fire with Daniel's friends. Um, on page 33 of his letters, page 33 of his letters. This is a letter that he writes the, regarding the prospect of being exiled uh, to Aberdeen, uh, to Mary McNaught, honored and dearest in the Lord, grace, mercy, and peace be to you. I am well and my soul prospereth. I find Christ with me. I burden no man. I want nothing. No face looketh on me, but it laugheth on me. Sweet, sweet is the Lord's cross. I overcome my heaviness. My bridegroom's love blinks. Fatten my weary soul. Love blinks. Boys and girls, he's speaking there of the, of, of the Lord as the groom, you know, uh, casting a loving face towards him. 
My bridegroom's love blinks, fatten my weary soul. I soon go to my king's palace at Aberdeen. He's going off to exile, to prison, house arrest. And yet, what does he call it? He calls it the palace of Christ. He says, I soon go to my king's palace. Not, he didn't mean king, king Charles. He meant Christ as king. I go to my king's palace at Aberdeen. Tongue and pen and wit cannot express my joy. Look at, uh, well, you can't look. Page 54. Page 54. He's writing here to Robert Blair, 1637. He says, I hope the Lord will move your heart to proclaim in my behalf the sweetness, excellency, and glory of my royal king. It is but our soft flesh that hath raised a slander on the cross of Christ. I see now the white side of it. My Lord's chains are all overgilded. Oh, if Scotland and Ireland had part of my feast... He's saying here, I'm suffering, I'm in prison for the Lord's sake. But oh, if you could know the delight of my soul right now, I could wish that all of Scotland and Ireland knew what this communion with Christ was like. He says, and yet I get not my meat, but with many strokes. He says, you know, he's getting fed, but it's costing him. There are none here to whom I can speak. I dwell in Cater's tents. The tents of Cater, remember that comes from the Psalms. He says, you know, I'm for peace, but I dwell among the, the, the sons of Cater. I dwell among the tents of Cater. I am for peace, but they are for war, meaning he's surrounded by unbelievers and, and bloodthirsty people. He says, refresh me. He says to Blair, refresh me with a letter from you. Few know what is betwixt Christ and me. Dear brother, upon my salvation, this is his truth that we suffer for. Christ would not seal a blank charter to souls. Courage, courage, joy, joy forevermore. Oh, joy, unspeakable and glorious. Oh, for help to set my crowned king on high. Oh, for love to him who is altogether lovely. That love which many waters cannot quench. See, there's that song of songs reference again. Neither can the floods drown. I remember you and bear your name on my breast to Christ. I beseech you, forget not his afflicted prisoner. Grace, mercy, and peace be with you. Wow, could you imagine getting a letter like that from your pastor? <laughs> oh, that I could write like that, right? <laughs> Let me just give you a, just a few more. We'll close. Page 65. And I, I, I had about 20-some of these. I don't have time to give you all of them. Again, this is another letter to Marion McNaught. Uh, adherence to duty in the amidst, in the admit, amidst opposition and the power of Christ's love. Pray, pray for my desolate flock and give them your counsel when you meet with any of them. It sh- you know, he's separated from his church. It shall be my grief to hear that a wolf enters in upon my labors. But if the Lord permit, permit it, I am silent. My sky shall clear, for Christ layeth my head in his bosom and admitteth me to lean there. I never knew before what his love was in such a measure. 
If he leave me, he leaveth me in pain and sick of love. And yet my sickness is my life and health. I have fire within me. I defy all the devils in hell and all the prelates in Scotland to cast water on it. Meaning he has such a sense of communion with Christ. He dares all the devils of the world to try and quench what he is feeling uh, in his own soul. He says, I rejoice at your courage and faith. Pray still as if I were on my journey to come and be your pastor. What iron gates or bars are able to stand it out against Christ? For when he bloweth, they open to him. I remember your husband. Grace, grace be with you. Um, I got two more minutes here. Let's do his letter to David Dixon. And uh, it's subtitled, Christ, Infinite Fullness. This is a fellow minister. And Rutherford says to Dixon, he says, My reverend and dear brother, I fear that you have never known me well. If you saw my inner side, it is possible that you would pity me but you would hardly give me either love or respect. He said, if you knew what a sinner I was, you wouldn't have anything to do with me. Men mistake me the whole length of the heavens. My sins prevail over me and the terrors of their guiltiness. I am put often to ask if Christ and I did ever shake hands together in earnest. I mean not that my feast days are quite gone, but I am made of extremes. I pray, God, that you never have the woeful and dreary experience of a closed mouth, for then you shall judge the sparrows that may sing of the church of Irvine, blessed birds. But my soul hath been refreshed and watered when I hear of your courage and zeal for your never-enough-praised-praised master, in that you put the men of God chased out of Ireland to work." He goes on, I'm skipping here. I am pained, pained that I have not more to give my sweet bridegroom. And there again, he goes back to Song of Solomon, doesn't he? His comforts to me are not dealt with a, with a short hand. But I would fain learn not to idolize comfort, sense, joy, and sweet-felt presence. All these are but creatures and nothing but kingly, but the kingly robe, the gold ring, and the bracelets of the bridegroom. The bridegroom himself is better than all the ornaments that are about him. He's saying, you know, I enjoy the comforts of the Lord just like anybody else, but the Lord is more precious than even the comforts of the Lord. He said, the bridegroom himself is better than all the ornaments that are about him. Now I would not so much have these as God himself. And to be swallowed up of love to Christ, I see that in delighting in a communion with Christ, we make more gods than one. But however, all was but bairn's play, children's play, between Christ and me until now. If one would have sworn unto me, I would not have believed what may be found in Christ." I hope that you pity my pain that much in my, in my prison as to help me yourself 
and to cause others help me. Uh, there's a Scottish word here, I don't know. A sinful wretch <laughs> to pay some of my debts of praise to my great king. Let God be judge and witness if my soul would not have sweet ease and comfort to have many hearts confirmed in Christ and enlarged with his love and many tongues set on the work to set on high my royal and princely well-beloved. Oh, that my sufferings could pay tribute to such